We've all been there. You're standing in a museum, staring at a painting, and all you can think is, I don't get it. To me, knowing the story behind an artwork is a huge part of knowing how to look at it. I'm Amanda, the host of the Art of History podcast, where we view history through the lens of some really great works of art. Each episode, we dive deep into the bigger picture behind some familiar and maybe not so familiar pieces. Check out Art of History now wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is episode 84. It's a part two episode. This is walk-in part two. Now, if you didn't listen to episode one, you don't have to. It's not a continuation. This just came about because I did an episode about pedestrians and walking, and there were so many interesting stories that I just made it two episodes that were released pretty close to one another. So here we go. Now, uh, the first ep- the first story in this episode is really kind of a, a, a sampler. There's four or five, maybe, pedestrians. Like, pedestrianism was a big thing. Competitive walking. So it was a sport. Believe it or not, it's amazing. Uh, so you'll have to kind of keep up with the names. There's there's four short stories in there, um, but I, I think you'll you'll get it. It's great. They're great stories, you know. I think it'll be fun. Uh, the second story is about two different guys who made homes from things that they found by taking walks, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> If you gave someone three guesses as to what the most popular spectator sport in England and America during the 1800s might have been, most people would never even come close. Was it boxing? Was it badminton? Was it bowling? No, of course not. It was none of these things. When it comes to athletic competition in the 1800s, it's hard to beat the thrilling, drama-rich, and fanatically inspiring sport of pedestrianism. Yes, that's right. Walking. Competitive walking. Sometimes this competitive walking was walking for speed. Sometimes it was walking for distance. Sometimes it was all about endurance. But all of the time, it was for the bombastic excitement of fans. Are you ready to watch these people walk? Now, before we get into the superstars of the 19th century walking world, it should be said that depending on the time or place, competitive walking had a variety of rules. What qualified as walking wasn't always the same, but a good rule of thumb, or rule of toe, I guess, is that they mostly followed the heel-to-toe principle. This means competitors couldn't lift their toes off of the ground until their other heel, the one currently stepping, was back down too. In other words, competitive walkers had to be making contact with the ground at all times. You see, when someone runs, 
there are times when they are completely in the air, free from the ground at all. And this is a no-no in competitive walking. You don't step with one foot until the other one is back on Earth. So the next question you may ask was, when and where did competitive walking begin? Well, it's hard to say. Humans have been taking steps for a pretty long time, and there's no telling who challenged someone to what. But that's not a great answer to your question. It could have been anywhere. But as far as people paying attention to and getting excited about a walking challenge, and then this challenge inspiring others to try it themselves, well, one moment stands out to me. The big moment, or extended series of moments more accurately, took place in 1809, when a Scottish man named Robert Barclay Allardyce accepted a bet in Suffolk, England. 1,000 miles, 1,000 hours, and 1,000 guineas. Those were the details. How the bet went down, we're not totally sure. But Captain Barclay, as he was known, had been taking some pretty extreme walks for the last decade by this point but nothing much longer than 100 miles at a time, which, by the way, was a distance he conquered in under 20 hours, in the mud, on two separate occasions. He was confident in his chances for the challenge of 1,000 miles and took the bet. No big deal, he figured. 1,000 miles and 1,000 hours meant he'd only have to go one mile an hour. Of course, this meant very little solid rest, and if he succeeded, the victory would bring him 1,000 guineas which were gold coins minted in Great Britain at the time. It was a lot of money, to say the least. If you're doing the math at home, 1,000 hours is just about 42 days. And another key detail of the bet was that every hour he had to go one mile. He couldn't take four hours off and then make up for them in later hours. He had to walk one mile every hour for 1,000 miles. Again, that's 42 days. So on June 1st, he walked his first mile, and it was probably easy. The first few days probably were. Most of the rest, however, were not. Officials laid out a straight, half-mile path which he would walk, turn around, and then walk again to complete the full mile. There were lanterns hung from above because nighttime was still the right time for ambulating without sunshine. He had to walk around the clock and every hour he had a mile to complete. Sometimes he'd walk his one mile at the end of an hour, and then immediately walk another mile at the beginning of the following hour. This gave him the most time to rest, usually about 90 minutes, because this dude was not going to be getting a full night's sleep for 42 days. Other times of the day, his remaining non-walking time in an hour would be used to eat, groom, use the restroom, talk with friends. It was hard on his body. He had muscle pains, cramps, spasms, even a terrible two-day toothache. On a couple of laps, his assistant actually had to run out on the track and hit him because he was falling asleep on his feet. Most days, crowds were gathered to watch, mingle with one another, and bet on the possibility of his success. By the end, it was a madhouse. Everyone wanted to witness the marvelous feat he accomplished on his surely sore feet. When he finished on July 12th, he immediately took a warm bath and then went to sleep. And eventually, he woke up a much wealthier man. 
many people were inspired to try the same 1,000 miles and 1,000 hours challenge. Emma Sharp was one such lady, and she always claimed to never do any training. She'd just get out there and walk, and walk, and walk, and walk. Emma's feats inspired another British woman, Ada Anderson, to give it a try for herself. But Ada did do some necessary training for her ambulatory attempts. She wasn't nearly as concerned about the walking as she was about the sleep deprivation. So she spent months training herself to operate with less and less sleep. Don't do this. For her, the sleep was the biggest issue because she made her own version of the thousand and thousand challenge. Ada resolved to walk 1,000 half miles in 1,000 half hours. Now, if it seems easier to walk a shorter distance, yeah, maybe you have a point. But when you consider that you have less time and must do it more frequently, you might find it is actually more difficult. Every half hour, Ada would have to walk. And during the 21-day stunt, she never had more than 20 minutes at a time that she was not on her feet. And on that matter, Ada said it was not the lack of sleep that was the problem for her, but it was the blisters. Her most famous moment came in 1878 in Brooklyn, New York, as she took pedestrian fever to America. At the indoor arena called Mozart Hall, she shrank her distance and her repeating start times in half yet again. Ada walked 2,700 quarter miles in 2,700 quarter hours. Now, if this math is making less and less sense to you, think of it this way. Every 15 minutes for 675 straight hours, or 28 days, she walked a quarter of a mile. Mozart Hall was filled with eager audience members. Famous people came to walk a few laps with her, and she'd sing to crowds as she walked, and when spectators would inevitably fall asleep, she'd mockingly draw on their faces with a lump of coal. 28 arduous days after starting, she completed her mission and became the brightest star of the walking world. The next year, a new stepping star sailed onto the scene. Frank Hart had immigrated to New York from Haiti, and he was working as a grocery store clerk when someone noticed his talent for walking and suggested a new career. Frank, I gotta say it, you sure are a great walker. Um... Thanks. You ever thought about doing it professionally? You mean walking? Yeah, for money. I haven't. I mostly just walk to, you know, get places, I guess. Well, you should think about it as a career. Yeah, okay. Frank thought about it and saw pedestrianism becoming the rage. So he got involved, and it was a wise move, because he soon became one of the first black superstar athletes in American history. And much of his fame came because in 1880, he broke a world record, making him the first official black world record holder. It came in a six-day race where he walked 565 miles, which was 94 miles each day. No one had managed to walk in such an extreme manner before Frank Hart. For years, his foot-based fame and shoe-exhausting successes kept him at the top of the walking world. But not long after his rise to speed-walking splendor, America's attention was captured by the allure of something new. 
baseball was also on the rise, and in the 1880s the sport took pedestrianism's place as the national pastime. Looking around, Frank could see his sport was falling out of step with the public, so he quit the tracks and took to the baseball diamond instead. And he was really good at baseball, too. All big movements have a swan song. One last big moment in the sun, as it were. Just because baseball was everyone's favorite, plenty of people still loved to walk, even if there weren't crowds showing up to watch them. Edward Payson Weston was one such man, and his crowning achievement put a nice exclamation point on the once wildly popular sport of walking. He seemed to understand people's desire for something bombastic, and probably would have identified with the current day motto, go big or go home. His last big bombastic walking goal wasn't a surprise to anyone. He had spent a lifetime as one of America's leading pedestrians. In fact, he first entered the history books when he walked 480 miles from Boston to Washington, D.C. in 1861 in order to attend Abraham Lincoln's first presidential inauguration. And he was inspired to keep going from then on. For decades afterwards, he was one of the most prominent promenaders in all of the world. And in 1909, Mr. Weston looked back on a career of walking that would fill any other peripatetic person with pride. But he was not satisfied. There was something left to conquer. The American continent itself. He wanted to cross the whole thing on foot, in a time before most places had paved roads, mind you. So on his 70th birthday, he left New York City with a goal to make it to San Francisco, on a 4,000-mile trek, and he wanted to do it in 100 days. Every step of the way, people watched as he passed. Some followed along for a while. The press covered him daily, and for most of the journey, it looked like he might make it. But he did not. It took him 104 days. Can you believe it? So close, yet so far away. So after resting for a while in San Francisco, he thought about walking back to New York City again to try to break the 100-day mark. One more try. Luckily, his friends convinced him to take a train back instead of forcing his body to repeat such an arduous journey. But he couldn't let it rest. The following year, he did the journey in reverse from Los Angeles to New York, and he did it well under his 100-day goal. Maybe the next time you head out for a walk, Remember these superstar strollers and speedy saunterers? Imagine a stadium of spectators, eager and excited to watch you walk. It might make for a more exciting commute. And who knows, maybe the sport of pedestrianism will make a roaring comeback. In which case, you can be prepared to leave your footprint on history. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. 
Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. For You Have 30 Seconds, Annabelle is here to tell us about some history from her hometown. I love to know why streets and sites are named after certain people, and this one is really fascinating. Hi, I'm Annabelle from New Haven, Connecticut. In 1649, King Charles I of England was beheaded. His son Charles II hunted down the regicides, or judges, that sentenced him to death. Three regicides made their way to New Haven. John Dixwell came first and lived freely under the name James Davis. William Goff and Edward Whaley came later. When the king's soldiers came looking for the men, they hid in a group of boulders called Judge's Cave, while locals helped them. After a month, they came out of hiding and went free in the colonies. Three main streets in New Haven are named after these men. I love it. Thank you, Annabelle. That was fantastic. And I love, love, love knowing stories behind streets and sites. Like I said up front, it's such a great way to learn history. And great job. I know you did all the research yourself, too. So that's fantastic. Hats off to you or soccer balls off to you. You'll get that joke after quiz time. Anyway, um, if you have a you have a you have a 30 seconds and you want to send it to me, all you have to do is send it via a recorded message to hello at the past and the curious dot com. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Okay, it's another walking quiz time, you know, part two. So, question number one. Manoj Mishra of India holds a world record for walking the farthest distance while balancing something on his head. What was it that he balanced on his head for 30 miles? It was a soccer ball, or a football, as he and much of the world would call it. And he did it in 2016. He carried it, balanced on his head for 30 miles. It took him 11 hours to do that. Hats off, or soccer balls off to you, Manaj. Question number two. Which way of walking burns more calories? Walking forwards or walking sideways? Research shows that walking sideways burns more calories because it takes more effort and it engages different muscles in different ways than what your body is used to. So try it sometime. Okay, this is a quick one. So question number three, how many muscles do you use when you take one step? Just one single tiny solitary little step takes about 200 of your muscles. You gotta lift a foot, move it forward, put it down, shift your weight, keep your balance. It's a lot of work. So congratulate yourself next time. 200 muscles engaged. Building stuff is not easy. It takes a lot of time and energy to create something that didn't exist before. Whatever it is, someone has to make it. And let's say that's you. And let's say you're going to build a house. Your concerns would go beyond the brain power and expertise required to get four walls to stand up, have solid joints, and be able to handle the inherent stress of windows and doors and roofing. 
That's just the engineering and construction part of the job. But what about the logistics? Where do you get materials good enough to build your home to be? And how do you get those materials wherever it is that you're building this house? The job might be easier these days thanks to trucks and industries built around getting materials to builders, not to mention ready-to-go home fixtures like doors and windows. But imagine if building your home was something you had to do on your own in the 1700s or the 1800s. I think we can all agree it would not be an easy job. But throughout history, there have been more than a few people who decided that the easy way was not the path for them. Those people are typically pretty interesting people. And in some cases, they are mysterious. We don't know a lot about Simeon Ellerton. We know that he lived in Crake, England in the 1700s. And according to the records, he died in 1799. And often, people claim that he was 104 years old when he died. Considering that this is twice the age most people lived to be in rural England at this time, this is remarkable in and of itself. But other sources say he only lived to be 97, which is still really impressive. Age, however, is not the most impressive thing about him. At least from the stories that have been passed down. You see, documents seem to be scarce, which is not unusual for this time and place. He lived a long way from London. Around 70 miles of roadless landscape lay between him and the city. Simeon was ahead of his time, though. He was a fitness fanatic. And he also knew something that doctors tell us today. Walking is great exercise. Really, when considering health benefits, it's tough to beat walking. And Simeon loved it. He walked every day, and he loved going great distances. And at some point, it dawned on him. Why not make a little money with his proclivity for perpetual pedestrianism, his appetite for all-day ambulation, his motivation for monotonous migration? If the alliteration is not clear, let me put it this way. Dude liked to walk. He knew people in his town needed things delivered to other towns, often to the city of London. So Simeon gladly accepted a bit of money for the chance to walk the rocky paths and dirt roads of England. He would deliver what they needed delivered and then head back home, enjoying each step in the fresh air. But according to stories, when he returned, he was usually seen strolling back into town with a rock on his head. This was confusing and curious to his fellow townsfolk, but when he was asked why the rock was on his head, it is said that his regular answer was always like this. To keep my hat on. Duh. Now, it wouldn't just be any old rock up there riding on his noggin. If someone had followed him, they probably, well, they probably would have gotten tired, but eventually they might have seen him bend over before passing up a stone that got his attention. Simeon was always on the lookout for a certain size and a certain shape of rock. If he found one he liked, he took it. And if he found one that he liked better, he replaced the stone on his head with a new one. Simeon Ellerton wasn't just a fitness fanatic and delivery man for hire with a fondness for rocks. He was also a do-it-yourselfer looking to build a new home as cheaply as possible. That's the reason for the rocks. 
What better way to get material? They were free. You see, when he had enough stones carried into town atop his head, he surprised everyone by using his rock collection to build himself a new home. A tidy little stone hut that still stands today, at least according to what I could find, but it's hard to tell because much of his story has veered into legend. But Simeon Ellerton is not alone. 35 years after his death, a baby was born in France, and this baby would grow up to also make history with rock walks of his own. Born to a poor farming family in the southern part of the country, Ferdinand Cheval originally planned to be a baker, and at 13 he apprenticed at a local bakery, but he couldn't cut the mustard, or knead the dough, I guess. His recipe for success would not include flour or salt. Instead, he found his calling as a mail carrier, one who gladly accepted larger and larger routes. Walking didn't phase him, but it was falling to the ground that changed his life. <sighs> One day, when he was in his 40s, Ferdinand was minding his own business, carrying the mail to homes on his route, just as he had done hundreds of times before. But on this particular day, he was moving fast, perhaps too fast, and he tripped when his foot caught something sticking out of the earth. Ferdinand made a nosedive to the ground, and shaking off the surprise, the mailman was immediately curious as to what caused his tumble. He found a rock. And looking at this rock unlocked something deep in his mind. The memory of a dream that he had almost forgotten. In a dream, I had built a palace, a castle, or caves. I cannot express it well. I told no one about it for fear of being ridiculed, and I felt ridiculous myself. Then, 15 years later, when I had almost forgotten my dream, when I wasn't thinking of it at all, my foot reminded me of it. My foot tripped on a stone, and it was a stone of such strange shape that I put it in my pocket to admire it at my leisure. We've all put a rock in our pocket before, right? There is no telling what your average walk can unlock when you meet the right rock. This life-changing stone he found was sandstone, and the thing about it that captured his imagination was its descending series of roundish layers. The easiest way to describe it is that it looked like a stack of oddly shaped pancakes where each cake was a little smaller than the one below it. It was so beautiful to him, and nature had made it that way. The beauty of this pancake rock unlocked something fierce in this man. And it wasn't a hunger for breakfast. He had a fever, and the only cure was more stones. The next day he gathered more, and the day after that, and every other day that followed. At the end of each mail route, his pockets would be overflowing with whatever stones and pebbles had struck his fancy. He found his pockets weren't enough to keep up with his pebble passion, so he upgraded to a satchel. And sure, it was easier to fill the big bag with more rocks, but that also meant it got heavy, and no one wants to carry around a big bag of rocks all day. So ultimately, he took a wheelbarrow with him on his daily walking route. And each evening, he'd return home with a fresh haul of rocks he'd found and liked. Everyone around him thought that he was losing his grip on reality, but he didn't pay attention to the criticism. He just kept working, caring about the rocks he found, 
and saw them as a way to make his vision a reality. Just like Simeon, Ferdinand had a plan, or a dream actually, to bring to the world. With no training in art or architecture or stone carving or anything else remotely related, he began to build his very own stone palace from his collected rocks. For 33 years, he collected on rock walks and delivered mail by day and then worked as his own architect and mason by night with little more than the light of an oil lamp. The structure he built is now known as the Palais Ideal, which I never took French, so I can't really say it very well, but I'm guessing it translates to the Ideal Palace or Palace Ideal. Art lovers, architects, and regular people who like cool things marvel at it still today. And during his lifetime, people did too, once they stopped criticizing him for seeming so strange. As soon as people truly saw what he was creating, they wanted one of their own. But his palace is truly one of a kind. Only someone with vision, creativity, dedication, and a lot of time could create something like it. It is completely unique, reaching 33 feet or 10 meters high and being nearly 85 feet or 26 meters in length, the building is spacious, even by the standards of today. But it's also incredibly beautiful. Every surface of the stone-like walls and towers are covered in ornamentation, carvings, and even poetry etched into the stone. And all of this was designed and done by Ferdinand a man with no training at all. It's really hard to describe. You kind of have to see it. This unusual home was a realization of a dream that he had had so many years before the work even began. A dream he had almost forgotten. And once remembered, he wanted to share it. In his own words, Ferdinand wanted visitors to wonder if they had been carried away into a fantastic dream with boundaries beyond the scope of imagination. And he also wanted people to know that he, who made it, was just a normal guy. An inscription he wrote on the wall reads, I was not a builder. I had never handled a mason's trowel. I was not a sculptor. The chisel was unknown to me, not to mention architecture. Everything you can see, passerby, is the work of one peasant who, out of a dream, created the queen of the world. Around the age of 80, Ferdinand began making plans for his final resting place, and it only seemed fitting to him that he be buried in his incredible self-made stone palace. But the local government would not allow it. He could only be buried in an actual cemetery. This upset him, but rather than fight it, he came up with an elegant solution. He bought a cemetery plot and then made a matching mausoleum with the same artistic flourishes made of the same found stones of the French countryside. And that's where he rests, while his incredible home still welcomes visitors every day. Well, all right. Thank you for listening to episode 84 of The Past and the Curious. If you haven't listened to episode 83 about walking, uh, you know, go listen to that one too. It's great. And listen to the other um, 82 before that also, right? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for sharing, spreading the word. It's such a joy to create this. Um, this came out very quickly uh, after episode 83. So um, 
I'll have another episode in just a couple weeks. It won't have anything to do with walking, though I'm sure some of the people will walk at some point in the stories. That just, you know, that's pretty probably going to happen, right? Anyway, um, but uh, I will be in Lexington, Kentucky on October 21st, which is the Kentucky Book Fair or the Book Fest. Um, I will be tabled there. So if you are in the area, come out and say, hey, I'll be there with the meat shower and my new book. I see Lincoln's underpants. I am really excited about this book. I haven't mentioned it in a couple months on the show, but it's still out there in the world and it's still a really good book. If you enjoy the show, um, that might be something to pick up a copy of. I know a lot of libraries have copies and it is available wherever books are sold, though, you know, you might have to order it, but you know, that that's cool. That's cool. It really helps. Everything helps. Thank you all very much. My name is Mick Sullivan. I hope you have a great one, and I will be talking to you in just a few weeks, which means I got to get to writing. I'll be back. Bye. Calling all trivia nerds. Brittany here, and I host the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast with my best friend, Meredith. Is your next car ride looking like a snooze fest? We've got The Cure, three rounds of awesome trivia every week. Harry Potter, Disney, science, sports, you name it. No more silent car troubles. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Connect, laugh, and learn with your kids, big and small. (laughs) New episodes every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast.